Good morning. My name is Taryn. We're going to be reading from Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, My name is Josh Kim. I am one of the assistant pastors here at Christ Central. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for that. All right. I like that. I like that beginning to our sermon today. Um, If you're new, visiting us, that doesn't normally happen. Just want to let you know. Uh, But we are glad that you're here with us. And please do stop by our Welcome Central. We'd love to get to know you and share about what God is doing uh, through this church. Um, This morning, I have a privilege of preaching from the Word of God from one of my favorite books of the Bible, and you probably guess why I like this book a lot. Um, In fact, my name comes from this book, not that the other way around, uh, Book of Joshua. And Joshua is a very unique book um, that is a transitional book coming from a Pentateuch we call the first five books of the Bible, that after Moses writes, and actually he's no longer with the Israelites, and now there's a leadership transition that happens to Joshua, and he writes this book as he conquers the land of Canaan. Um, and as we delve into this book, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from what it means to, um, just like we sang, what it means to trust in the good, good father. And that's what we're going to do as you delve into chapter five. But we're going to do that by looking at not only this small portion that we read, but we're going to kind of look at the entire narrative of Joshua's story as we delve into this particular instance where Joshua has with the commander of the Lord's army. Remember, it was October 2011. I was faced with one of the most critical decisions of my life. October 2011, about, what, eight years ago now. The question was, do I finally give in and switch over? The question was, do I finally give in and switch over? And if you are a baseball fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even if you're not, it's fine. It was October 2011. The place was St. Louis. What I was faced was a newly crowned World Series champion, St. Louis Cardinals, winning again. All right, there's St. Louis Cardinals fans here. Winning again for about 20th time or so, a season that they were not expected to win, they won. And I share often from this pulpit, I'm from Chicago, and if you know anything about baseball, Cardinals and Cubs fans don't get along. Uh, And for Cubs, I know, I know there's people here, right? Um, in 2011, after 103 years of losing, can you imagine that? 103 years of losing. And in that season, I believe we were about 25 games behind the first place winners. And I was a youth pastor at the time. And as my youth students in St. Louis were celebrating and taunting me, saying, why are you always rooting for the losers? Why won't you go on the winning side and enjoy what it means to be a part of a winning team? 
And the question was, do I switch over, and you might call it bandwagon, bandwagon over to St. Louis Cardinals and celebrate the biggest rival, or do I stay with the Cubs, who are called lovable losers at best? And we could call it bandwagon all we want, and the term exists for a reason. But at the heart of the reason why we want to switch over is because we want to be on the winning side, don't we not? We always want to be on the winning side. We want our teams to win. We want our teams to be ranked number one in the latest polls. That's why a lot of us want to root for Alabama Crimson Tide. Amen, huh? Amen, all right. We want to be Crimson Tide fans, don't we? Come back, guys, all right, come back. Some of you, and as you're thinking about leaving this church, stay with me, stay with me, Pastor Howard. Stay with me. But, you know, not only in sports, but we also want to win in life, too. Don't we not? We want to win in our social media. That's why our Instagram is filled with picture-perfect uh, posts of how our life is perfect. That's why we get the latest phones, because it has three cameras to capture that in a nice way, right? We want our children to come home with A pluses. Uh, if they bring A minuses, we wonder, what's wrong with you? Right? We could do better. Plus, it's better than minus. Um, we want perhaps our child to be a popular child, someone that is a leader rather than the follower. We want to work for the companies that's ranked number one. We want our nation to be best at something. You know what's the fastest way for charlatans to do something? When we tell them that we're last in something. Because we always want to be the best at something in our lives. We also want our church to be the best at something. We want the church to be the best or on the winning side. Oh, I like the church because the church is growing. It's winning. It has influence. And don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to be on the winning side. It's not wrong to be the best at something. It's not wrong to want that. But the question is, to what extent were you willing to go to be on their winning side. And the question also is, for what reason and the purpose that you want your children, your family, or even your church to be on the winning side? When we read the today's scripture, we also recognize why Joshua might be asking this stranger the question of, are you for us or against us? To give us the context of where we are in Joshua, as I said before, we're in transition period in the life of Israel. If you follow the story of the Old Testament, of the Exodus story for the first five books of the Bible, we know that Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And God delivers them out with the strong hands and outstretched arms. And there's a biblical term to describe God's powerful grace to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And now on the eve of conquering the land that God promises to give to the Israelites, there's a leadership succession that happens. Moses, perhaps the greatest leader, even God who says there will not be a prophet like Moses after him, is no longer with Israel. And his longtime apprentice, Joshua, takes the role to lead this nation into this land. And as he's facing his first conquest, first city to conquer, it's perhaps the most well-defended city of them all. It's almost like 
a Division III college football team playing its first game against, I, I get this, right? Clemson football, the best team <laughs> in the nation. Are you back now? Right? So he's out and about, perhaps in prayer and meditation, thinking that this is an impossible task, but most likely in checking out the land and the mission that God is giving him. And in this story, he runs across someone who sees in the distance with a drawn sword in his hands. And what he does is what you and I expect. In the most difficult moment, perhaps the testing moment of his life, he asks the question, are you for me or are you against me? And that's the question that you and I often ask. In the most difficult moments of our lives, to the valleys of the shadow of death, in the moments of the extreme testings, we often ask God the same thing, don't we not? Are you for me, God, or are you against me? Especially when things do not go the way I want it to go. And then we complain by saying, God, why are you not for me in this case? And the answer he gets is one of the most incredible answers that he ever gets. It says, no, but, or another translation will have it, neither. It doesn't really matter. And what I want you to do as we delve into this text is to see three lessons that Joshua learns in his encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. And not only for Joshua, but I think this lesson is for the Israelites who are in the land of Canaan. And it's also a lesson that all of us as we're called to live in this world, following after this commander of the Lord's army. The first lesson he learns is that my way is not God's way. The first lesson that Joshua learns is that my way is not God's way. In Art of War, a famous book, A Military Strategy, written by an ancient Chinese general, he writes, In the midst of chaos, there is also opportunity. Art of War is written for military generals in how to conquer or go about warfare. Basically, it's saying in the midst of chaos, there's opportunity. Strike while the iron is hot. But Joshua experiences something else in chapter 5. It's actually complete opposite of striking while it's hot. It's actually take your time. Wait for it. When we get to chapter 5 of Joshua, we find Israelites firmly in the land of Canaan. Do you know how they are able to get into the land of Canaan? By a miracle of the parting of the Jordan River. In chapter 4, God dries up the river Jordan, just like the Red Sea, and the Israelites have walked past this vast body of water by a miracle. And you know what is the result of this miracle on the land of Canaan, on the enemies? That's what we read in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, as soon as all the kings of Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, guess what it says? Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And if you're thinking, if there's any opportunity for you to go and strike a fear, or do a surprise attack. This is it. When they are afraid of you, you do the first punch, right? And you run away afterwards. I don't, 
Um, that's what I was told, right? If you, you meet a bully, you just strike him first and run away. Don't do that. Don't do that. But that's what you always think you were supposed to do. But verse 1 is followed by verse 2. And this is what God says in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And you're thinking, what is God doing? What God tells Joshua to do at this opportune time is not to strike a surprising attack on the enemy, rather paralyze the able fighting forces and leave them defenseless for about 10 days. Because I actually looked it up, it takes about 10 days for you to heal. And how paralyzing is this? Not only a lot of us can imagine the pain and the suffering that comes with this, but in the book of Genesis, the book that Israelites were aware of, there's a story of Simeon and Levi, their forefathers, two men, two men who was able to destroy an entire village after mass circumcision. In Genesis 34, we are told of a story of Simeon and Levi tricking a village to circumcise to be with them. And this is what it says. Three days later, three days later, while all of them were still in pain because of the circumcision, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Two male, two able men was able to wipe out a city because they circumcised. This was not a great strategy if you're going for war in an enemy territory. Be paralyzed for 10 days, be defenseless. But not only so, not only does God command them to be paralyzed for 10 days, they also were told to feast. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, it says, While the people of Israel was encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. I think normally we feast and we celebrate after you win something, don't we? Quite often, if you feast before you do anything, you die. Or you actually lose as the saying goes, well, might as well, we eat and be merry because since tomorrow we die, right? Sort of attitude. But here, Israelites are to celebrate the greatest festival of their, their nation on the eve of the battle. It is as if they're celebrating way too early. They're popping the champagne, but they didn't win anything. And for our mind and our strategy of the day, we'll say they're doomed. You know, they lost. They're not hungry. They're not hungry enough, right, to win it. They ate already. They lost. What is going on? What is God doing here? To top it off, in the eve of the battle, God appears to Joshua, in the former commander of the Lord's army, some say it's Christ, and rather than reaffirm him that he is going to go, and this is strategy, and let me tell you exactly what to do, or let me give you intelligence or intel on the layout of the city, and this is what he simply says to Joshua. Neither. What a great confidence booster that is. Neither. I'm not for you or against you. Neither, right? What is God doing with Joshua and the Israelites here? He's showing Joshua that he does not operate in the way we often think, or dare I say, we want him to, or even we think he ought to operate for us. Because what God is showing Joshua, the most important thing is not getting the land itself, but how you get the land. It's a major difference between how we treat God as is he working for you or are you in God's plan 
working for God's purposes? Are you living for God's plan and purposes in your life? Or are you trying to make God work for you? Do you demand God to do whatever you want him to do? Or do you want God to be the Lord and the King of your life? It's a simple truth, but most difficult to live by. Just the other day, as we were coming home, as I picked up my son, he looked at me in the car and says, Daddy, Daddy. It's like, yes, son, what do you want? To tell me I love you? No, he says, Daddy, I want to play with something. And I know exactly what that something is. He says, Daddy, I want to play with something. It's like, why, son? What is that something? I want to play with something because I have not played with that thing for a number of days. And as if to pull a fast one on me, he says, I deserve to play with this thing. Let me play with this thing for 15 minutes, which will be 50 minutes. But he says, I want to play with it. I will say, no, you cannot. And you know what he says? And it's iPad. What he says is, why? You are not nice. I'm like, oh, that hurts. And he goes on to say, you're not nice. Not only you're not nice, you're not my favorite anymore. <laughs> Mommy is. And you know, it hurt me. But as silly as the child's logic goes, how often we want to hear the word yes whenever we have requests before the Lord. We just want God to say yes. Just do whatever the way you want to do it because I affirm it. How often we go to God as if, he, as if he must get on my plans, not that I should get on his plans. How often we go to God for approval rather than God's instruction. How often we plan out our lives, our plans, our future. Even we say we prayed about it, but oftentimes we think about it on our own and we say to God, God, just, just say okay. I already did the hard work. All you have to say is I bless it. Bless it. Bless it. So I get it. I get what I want. And we often want is God's approval to do whatever we want rather than God's instruction to, suggest, to surrender, to say, yes, I will. Do you know how easy we could test this? As a pastor, oftentimes the question I get is this, how far can I go before I sin? I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what kind of question is that? But like, is this sinning? Is this sinning? Is this sinning? It's like, yes. Just your attitude itself is sinning, right? But that's how we do things all the time with God. We always say, God, can I do this? Can you bless that? Because I think that's good. We don't come with a clean slate and say, God, help me to know exactly what you want me to do. Go your ways. We rather go to God and say, can I do this much and still be okay with you? Church, how do you approach God this morning? Are we seeking God of the universe? to see the way you want him to see? Or do you come to the Lord, the God of the universe, in surrender, you want him to see the way he wants us to see? To serve and to be moved in the way that he wants you to be moved. You know, upon hearing neither, you know what Joshua hears next? Take off your sandals. The sandals... And shoes here represents one's authority, one's power, your desire to, your authority to do what you need to do or what you want to do, right? Basically, God says, take off your sandals, lay down your authority, your power, because you're in the presence of the Holy One. Not my will, may your will be done. And that's exactly what Joshua does. Church, are you taking off your sandals as you walk into the sanctuary this morning? 
Are you taking off your sandals as you walk after Christ with the cross on your back? If you're willing to take the cross on your back, you have to take off your sandals first. There's no way you take the cross with the sandals in your feet. The second thing we learn, not only does Joshua learn that his way is often not my way, not my way is his way, but he also learns that this God, God's way, involves a personal God who personally teaches him this lesson. In his best, uh, New York Times bestseller, Second Mountain, the author David Brooks speaks of a joy that one ought to get as follows. He says, but ultimately, joy is found not in satisfying your desires, but in changing your desires so you have the best desires. It's not satisfying your desires, but in changing your desires so that you have the best desires. And that's what we see in the scripture as well, don't we? And we learn this fact that you are to transform and to be on God's side. And how does God teach that to us? With involvement with the personal God. Who are the Israelites again in Joshua chapter 5 in the land of Jericho? We see that the Israelites in chapter 5 of Joshua is not the same people that actually left the exodus. Not the same people as people that left Egypt. In Numbers, another book of the Bible, in the first five books of the Bible, we see that despite the promises of God, the Israelites do not obey and face imminent annihilation from God, the rightful judgment. But Moses, remember Moses, perhaps the greatest leader, intercedes on behalf of God's people. And God relents from destroying and wiping out the entire nation. But here's the consequences for the generation that disobeyed God in the desert. Numbers 14, 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as the earth shall, earth shall be filled with the glory of God, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to test these 10 times have not obeyed my voice. And this is what it says. They shall not see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. So the command comes from the Lord in numbers. The generation that experienced the parting of the Red Sea generation that experienced the ten plagues, who have tested God in the desert, were forbidden to enter into the land of Canaan. But their descendants, a generation that is rising out of this desert, will be the one that will go. And in Joshua chapter 5, this is the group of people that we meet. They have heard of the ten plagues. They have heard of God's mighty hands and outstretched arms. They have heard of their forefathers crossing the Red Sea and as if it's a dry land. Only Caleb and Joshua are the ones that are living to testify to what they've experienced. But what God does in the beginning chapters of Joshua is remarkable. Not only will God lead them through Joshua in God's own way, but they will have now, through the experiences, have a personal testimony of God's grace. Follow along with me here. What I mean is this. The story of Red Sea parting in Exodus chapter 15, walking through a dry land, becomes a personal testimony to this group. 
in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. As now they walk through parting of the Jordan River, it becomes a personal testimony that they heard about. The story of God's providence of food in the desert through manna is now seized as promised as soon as they enter into the land of Canaan in Joshua chapter 5. They see the end of manna and the beginning of the produce of the land, and they testify to God's goodness, fulfillment of the promise at hand. The Passover in Egypt, the signal, the beginning of the Exodus. Now they experience the Passover in the land of Canaan that signifies beginning of their conquest. It becomes their personal testimony. And then soon, the Israelites will learn that God who delivers the Israelites from far more powerful nation like Egypt, with his mighty hand and outstretched arm, by him alone doing it, now this Israelites and the land and the plains of Jericho will do the exactly same thing. The God of the universe with outstretched arms will also deliver them and promise them and give them the land of Canaan. Those who tower over them, literally and figuratively, now they have testimony of God's grace and miracle through them that they could conquer a nation like this. But this isn't only for the Israelites, isn't it? What we see in today's text is Joshua's burning bush moment. Remember that the burning bush moment for Moses? Someone who was reluctant, but God met with him in the desert in this theophany of burning bush to show him his call, to call him to go. And that is who God was, who led Moses through leading the Israelites out. And on the eve of the conquest of Jericho, in the plains of Jericho, here Joshua, the next leader in line, who heard about all these stories, now has his burning bush moment, his personal testimony, his personal divine encounter. As Francis Schaeffer writes, when the person spoke to Joshua, Joshua suddenly understood who this was. And back into his memory flowed all I have just mentioned, plus much more. It must have been an overwhelming moment for Joshua as he was picking up the reins of the leadership of God's people. This was now much more than a memory. It was historical reality in the here and now. Here and now was the same supernatural leader, the same person with capital P. Moses was dead, but the true leader would go on. Because this one, this God said to Joshua, I have given into your hand Jericho. And because he knew this one kept his promises, Joshua was able to turn to his people before the wall of Jericho and say without any fear, shout, for the Lord hath given me this city. Why? Because the power was personal and the person was there. The God of Moses affirms Joshua that he in fact is also God of Joshua. Church, our God is not merely an urban legend. He's not a fairy tale that we read, a distant God who created me and left me alone. The Bible promises that he's an active, personal, living God who lives in us through the Spirit of the Lord. 
He brings forth the testimony of his grace in everyday lives of his people through the word that God gives us. And we ought to experience God's grace as we hear the preached word of God and testify the goodness of the Lord. That's what it means to be alive in Christ. That's what it means to live for the Lord. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob was God who led Moses out of the land of Egypt, who met with Moses in the burning bush. It's the same God who meets with Joshua now in the land of Canaan in his own burning bush moment. And this same God who was alive, who led Joshua and the Israelites through the land of Canaan. Church, do you believe that same God is also here with us this morning? who's living and active, who speaks into our souls. It's not merely the word that's being preached to you from an ancient book, but it's the word of God is living and active, speaking into our hearts. Do you believe that? Do you really believe the word of God has that power to transform your life, to say, not my way, Lord, but your way? Do you believe the word of God can speak into the value of the shadow of death? Do you believe that God will promise and deliver on his promises? God is ever so incredibly personal knowing exactly why you're sitting here and needing to hear the word that you need to hear. One of the joys of community groups that we gather is to hear different stories and testimonies that we hear. I want to encourage you, if you have not been part of a community group, join one, because your life will be enriched through it, not only because you study the word, but because the testimonies that you hear from others. And I often have conversations with many of you, and um, I know that a church like ours is not one of the easiest places to find that community because we have so many different stories. And can I be honest? Sometimes, sometimes even myself as a pastor have a hard time relating to people. Um, the other day, just pastors were sitting down and talking about different things, and the references to 80s pop culture came to our conversation. And just different things talk, were talked about, and I was silent. You know why? Because I wasn't here in the 80s, right? Like, I, I was in Korea. So when we're talking about 80s pop culture, I'm like, 80s pop culture means, uh, like, Korean pop songs? Like, I'm like, I don't know these rappers. I don't know these songs because I'm like, I'm in different land, right? I came in the 90s here. So we talk about 90s, like, I get that. Barney and all this stuff, I get that, right? But not... <laughs> Not to like pop and all this stuff. I, I can't sometimes get into this. And, um, you know, I think if it's, we're a homogenous setting, right? If we're in a homogenous setting, I think it's easier to connect. And I found that in my pastoring relation experience as well. It's easy to say, hey, you know my story? I'm like, yeah, that's my story too. And it's really easy to connect like that. And that's, yeah, I, we, I, I do think there's need for that. And we need that. And don't, please do not hear me saying that that's terrible. That's, that's good. I need that. Right? I'm wearing this shirt because I need to wear it. I need, I need that. I need to do that. Um, I need this. Okay, okay, this way of context. I'm sorry. I need that. In some church like ours, I think we need to make sometimes second and third efforts or make the second and third connections that may not naturally come to us. Like 80s don't come naturally come to me, but 90s too. Maybe 2000s. I don't know. It may come naturally to me, but I'm with you. I hear you, you. But also, I think that's the beauty of the church. Because sometimes when I hear the stories of Pastor Howard's life in South Carolina, when I hear the stories of God's grace in Pastor Derek's life in West Virginia, and God's story of grace in Pastor Mark's life in New York City, and on and on and on, and different stories that are represented here, you know, I, one thing that unites us all is the fact that God is so personal. 
meeting with us in each unique, different way, tailor-made for each one of us here. The fact that you're sitting here is not because there's a one-size-fits-all story of the gospel that you subscribe to and come. If you have that story, perhaps you're not really in the family, right? If you have, don't have the personal story of the gospel narrative spoken to you, then perhaps you don't really know the story because our God is a personal God. What we find is God is ever so personal that he knows us and he draws us the testimony for us so that every person that speaks, their testimony is unique to their life circumstances and their background. And that's what we see here. He works in us and the grace that draws out from our lives through the lives of Israelites, the Joshua generation of chapter 5, is a personal testimony of God's grace that are drawn out by the experience of the Word of God that's living and active. In a church like ours, I think we struggle, but we also experience the personal, unique, testimonial way, not only regionally, not only geographically, but also ethnically and racially. It takes, maybe it takes a double the effort. It may make a lot more difficulty in making the connections. But what a beautiful, what a fuller picture of the gospel you and I could experience, none like any other. And I'm not trying to elevate our church. I'm not saying that this church is better than anybody else, but I'm talking about what it means to be in the body of Christ. And two or more I gather, the testimony of God is true and is personal. Church, you're not here by accident this morning. And God is writing out your story this morning. And God of the universe is at work in your life. And the unique circumstantial situation that you're in, God is big enough to cover that. Do you know that? Do you really believe that? Do you know that God is big enough to speak into your unique life circumstances? Perhaps no one in this room will get you. Perhaps no one in this room will understand the pain that you're going through. Perhaps there's no one that could identify with you 100%. But what we see in today's scripture and time and time again is our God is big enough. Our God is big enough to draw out your obedience and the testimonies of grace out of you. That also means God must be alive and reign in your life. In the burning bush moment of Moses and in the encounter of Joshua, what we find is their proper response. Taking off the shoes, and it is no longer, am I winning? Am I doing this right? Rather, Oh, man, I wish I'm alive, right? Oh, man, am I on his side? And you know what that is? Worship. This is surrender heart, a proper response to the grace we experience in gospel story. And God does that personally through the word and communally through the grace in communities. Question this morning again is, are your sandals off yet? Are your sandals off yet? If not, there's one more lesson that they learn. One more lesson that Joshua learns is that personal God who speaks to him like this is also on your side. Our personal God is on your side. Yes, the answer here, as Joshua hears it, is neither or no, but. But what we also see is this personal God who led you thus far is still on your side. And that's important for us to know. And I'll qualify what that means in a little bit. 
Yes, this God, the personal, sovereign, powerful God, yet loving and personal God is on your side. Why? Because God is always on God's side. Right? So if you are in God's side, as we talked about, then he's going to be always on your side. Because by definition of God, God always has to be for himself. So if you're on the backs of God, you're always going to be winning. And what does that mean for the God is on God's side? God has to be holy. The holiness of God. The one key concept that stands out in this encounter centers on the holiness of God. The holiness of God means you're set apart. And here what we see is that God is not simply greater in degree, meaning he's not just better person or better God or whatever it may be than Joshua, but that God is entirely different order. I'm God, you're not, right? And the first, one of the biggest first concepts of Christianity, right? I'm not God. God is God. That's it, right? That's what God is telling you. And we see this further validated in why Israelites are allowed to conquer this land. Why does God allow Israelites to conquer this land? If you think about it out of context, you would think that this is invasion. This is a, this annihilation. This is genocide that is going to happen. Why would God want one nation to be wiped out at the expense of the other? Why would God allow Israelites to do this? The God of the universe. But if you put it into context of the biblical narrative, we see why God allows this to happen and why would God choose Israelites to do that. In Genesis chapter 15, 16, this is what God promised Abraham. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation and the iniquity of Amorites is not yet complete. They're sinning and I'm going to punish them. That's what God says in Genesis 15. Leviticus 18, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all these nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punish its iniquity. I must punish sin. Why? Because God is holy. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, don't you love that when the Bible says, do not think about this. Don't even entertain it. Don't even think about it. I think this is what I need to remember all the time. My wife always tells me, don't even think about it, right? Don't even think about it. It says, uh, it is because of my righteousness, not yours, that the Lord has brought me into the possessed land. Whereas it is, uh, don't think about it like that. And it is because of the wickedness of this nation that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, you're going to possess this land. Because of the wickedness of this nation, the Lord your God is driving them out. Three times he's saying this, not because of you, not you, not you. Get it? It's all because of me, me, me. Do you get this? And this is what God is saying, that he may confirm the words that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We're once again reminded that God's conquest of Joshua is not due to God's choosing over ethnic regions, saying, oh, I like Israelites better than this group of people. It's not because of that. It's not because Israelites are like, so nice Right? You're my favorite because you're so nice. You're, you're my favorite because you, you don't put me to test. No, they did 10 times. Right? No, you're my favorite because you just go in the desert run with me because no one else was. No, they were, you know, they just went. And we see this. Ultimately, when they don't obey God's command, they also will be punished. We see that in chapter 7 when they try to conquer this small, um, small city after conquering Jer Jericho. But God simply chooses Israelites why? Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with mighty hands and redeemed you from the house of slavery with the hands of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And church, this is the gospel. You get to be on his side. You get to be in his way. God's simply choosing to love you because you are in Christ, not because of your own righteousness, not because of your own goodness. And let's be honest, we're actually more like, more, less like Joshua in this story. We're actually more like the rebellious Israelites or the land of Canaan, right? We're like, oh, sinful people, that's me. That's you all. That's all of us. Let's be honest. That's who we are. We're the wicked ones. We're the ones who've fallen astray. Let's examine our weak. If you close your eyes, I love closing eyes when I pray, not because I, I believe in mysticism, whatever, maybe, but I love closing my eyes because when I close my eyes, I realize before God and I, there's nothing I could hide. I could even hide to my wife. I could hide to my family, all I want, but God knows my heart. Let's be honest. We treat God like we want a stamp of approval more often than not. We are the wicked ones. We want to be the Lord and King of our lives. We are the unclean ones. But get this church. That's why you need to hear this this morning. That's why you need to hear that only in Christ that you can be in his side. That's why you need to embrace that. That's the only way to be on God's side is to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why you need to hear this this morning to remember that Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. You need to hear that it is only through Christ you have this life, and through Christ, you can be on his side, and God can be for you. Yes, we will fail. That's why this Christ needs to come into our lives to forgive us of our sins, to redeem us at a price, so that we can now hope against hope in Christ because he alone saves us. The hope is not in the Israelites finding the right way to be on God's side here. The hope is not in the rightful worship of Joshua if he's taking off his shoe the right way. Right first, left first, left first. No, that's not the way. The hope that they find is the God of the universe is standing before Joshua and is saying, I am for you despite your failures because I love you. I am for you despite your future failures because I'm still committed to you. That's a covenant. That's a promise. I am committed to you no matter what. And this is what we hear in the New Testament. The Hebrew name for Joshua is translated as Jesus in the New Testament. You know that? Jesus saves. Jesus alone can save you. In Romans 8, 31, then what shall we say these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ. Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine, nor nakedness or danger or sore? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him 
who loves us, for I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Church, are your sandals off this morning? This is the gospel. The person at the burning bush, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the captain of the Lord's host, the one who is crucified, the one who rose again, Jesus Christ is the one who is still with us. To circle back to the fateful moment in 2011, did I jump on the bandwagon of St. Louis Cardinals? Because I didn't know in eight years, uh, actually not eight years, how long was it? In a few years later, that we'll win, right? But I did not. Against all the temptation of the world to jump on, <laughs> to join the evil side, as they would say. I did not. For a simple, silly reason. I have a baseball cap that says Chicago Cubs. And in seminary, I think I was actually just out of seminary, I was so poor to buy any other hat. I realized I'm a Cubs fan, no matter what. You know, even before Joshua leaves the Israelites in the book of Joshua, he appears in Numbers 13, in the spy narrative, as he was chosen as one of the 12. And I love this detail of the scripture, something that I often overlook. In Numbers 13, 16, this is what it says. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. And guess what it says? Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. Hosea, his meaning is salvation. What a great name. But you know what Joshua means? Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. God is your salvation. And quoting Francis Schaeffer again, Joshua would even in his name remember that it is not men who saves, but God who must save. And Jesus, of course, is a Greek form for the Hebrew name Joshua. In his name, he's reminded it is not he who saves, but Jesus, God who saves. Are your sandals off this morning? Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray in our posture of our sandals coming off our feet and surrender to our God in worship. Father, that's our we prayer, Lord, as we come to the presence of the Lord this morning, and we believe that, Lord. We believe that you are living and active. It's not merely a Sunday worship. We come to sing a couple of songs and to go home. We believe that, Lord, the God who appeared to Moses, God who appeared to Joshua, God who led the Israelites through the Jordan River, through Jericho, through land of Canaan, is our God this morning. Our God is living and active. Our God speaks. And Lord, we acknowledge that my way is not your way. Oftentimes, Lord, your way requires us to lose rather than win. We acknowledge that, Lord, but even in our midst of our struggles and failures, God, you're ever so personal with us. Despite our failures, Lord, you draw our testimonies out of our lives and when we are on your side, because, God, you are for yourself, Lord, we know that, Lord, we are more than conquerors. Who can be against us when you are for us? We thank you for that promise. Lord, in response, we want to take up our sandals 
and surrender to worship our God. Make that true of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.